0: You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So, welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazzle and I'm joined again by Ben Simon for our September Journal Club. How are you, Ben?
1: Mate, I am good. I'm looking forward to this month. It's been pretty meaty and uh, metatextual, so we'll, uh, uh, I think we'll have an interesting episode.
0: All right, we're already starting with the jargon, uh, Simulcast listeners, metatextual. You heard it here. <laughs> so uh, we're going to be talking about all things psychological safety, a little bit of epistemology, and a couple of short papers from me uh, about things that are coming up relating to peer-led debriefing and simulation for surgical safety checklists. So that's the headline. Ben, why don't you kick us off with the two papers of the month?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you actually suggested both of these to me, uh, Vic, as you know, but the first one being Managing Psychological Safety in Debriefings, a Dynamic Balancing Act, uh, and that's by Michaela Kolbe, uh, uh, published in 2019 in BMJ Stell. Uh, And the second paper is entitled, There Shouldn't Be Anything Wrong With Not Knowing. Epistemologies in Simulation, and it's by Ng et al., and again published in 2019, this time in medical education. You're listening to Simulcast. So the first paper really provides further depth and a potential course correction on psychological safety in simulation since the publication of Establishing a Safe Container for Learning in Simulation by Rudolf et al. many years ago, in that the authors extend previous foundational discussions on psych safety by pitching that achieving group psychological safety is a really complex interplay of a huge number of social dynamics. Indeed, they state that psychological safety is not stable, but rather a dynamic and fragile perception, and that it's affected by a multitude of factors involving traits of the individuals involved, group behaviours, as well as institutional culture. The authors then outline a number of implicit and explicit strategies that can be utilised before during and after debriefings to build, maintain, and repair psychological safety with a group of learners so that they embrace that risk-taking in the service of higher learning. And the article then moves on to becoming a bit of a field guide at recognising breaches of psychological safety through recognising verbal and nonverbal cues from participants. And then it outlines a number of conversational strategies to repair those breaches. And in particular, they explore and give a number of examples of naming the dynamic, which is a technique we first covered in Journal Club uh, in a previous paper entitled Difficult Debriefing Conversations. Um And that's where essentially you explicitly name the elephant in the room and you describe kind of the conversational dynamic that's happening. And in doing so, you hopefully sort of help everyone take a step back and offer them a strategy for getting out of that sort of um, state that you've been stuck in. Any thoughts on that one before I move on to the second article?
0: Yeah, I think you've summarized a pretty densely packed Uh, manuscript or article uh, in a very short space of words. The phrase about psychological safety being a dynamic and fragile perception was one that seemed to be picked up on also by the journal clubbers. Uh, and I certainly like this framework about it being individual group and organization. I think too often we put all this pressure on debriefers and say, you will just create psychological safety in this instant without recognizing that there's a whole lot of culture either on your side or not on your side uh, that people bring into that room long before uh, you start your simulation. Uh, just, I guess the other thought as you read this, And it was in that second part where they start to say, here you go, recognize this. And then here's a strategy. It's another example, I feel like, where the journal article is the wrong medium, because I feel like there's so many cues and so much nuance to this. I really must be very challenging for the authors to try and describe it with enough depth that a reader can think, oh, here's a situation, I can recognize it. And now I've got some guidance as to how to respond. And I think it actually takes a bit of experience to get the most out of this paper.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think also you can sort of feel the street smarts coming through this paper. Um and that uh I hear what you're saying about it not necessarily being uh the perfect medium to get some of that conversational nuance, but at the same time I think that as much as they can, they've described it very well with sort of both conceptual and concrete examples and and scripts and and things like that to work through.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we'll look forward to the companion instructional videos to come, no Mm. doubt.
1: (laughs) That sounds good. Um, So look, the second article... Uh, which again is called There Shouldn't Be Anything Wrong With Not Knowing, which is by Stella Ng et al, critiques both medical culture and simulation education in some ways by arguing that while simulation-based education espouses the importance of psych safety, the reality is that particularly medical culture is actually a pretty judgmental place where mistakes are not necessarily well embraced and in fact confidence in being right about having the concrete facts is often much more highly valued on the floor on day-to-day work in hospitals. And so, as such, they suggest that there's this conflict between how we say we're teaching and the social signals that learners actually perceive um, in terms of, you know, we think we can create unintended consequences. Um, And so, it's really important to really think very heavily about kind of the social complexity of this. So, how do they explore that theory? through a qualitative analysis of med students' perceptions about learning in a ser- series of sims on accurate heart oscillation, And through their analysis, uh, they find that participants weren't super focused on the stuff that sim education often espouses, you know, contextualization of principles and knowledge building through shared exploration of concepts. Uh, and instead, most of them just wanted to get it right. They want the right answer. They want to get it efficiently. And they see the faculty as kind of these gurus with all the right answers. Um, Um, And I'm guessing that's horrifying if you're a constructivist, Vic. Are
0: you labelling me a constructivist? (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly the way I would put this most simply is students often struggle with grey. And I think that's particularly hard as junior learners. And the reality that there is grey is something that uh, people pretty much have to come to grips with if they're going to continue in their healthcare training.
1: Yeah, look, I uh, and that is one major beef I have with this paper, I guess, is that I I remember vividly starting med school with a background in visual arts and animation and uh, going to these problem-based learning sessions where we're supposed to generate our own questions and I just desperately wanted someone to tell me what the liver does. And um, I'm not sure that this group of learners is the right, place to test that theory about medical culture when really med student culture is in many ways its own thing
0: oh i couldn't agree more now if only you'd been to medical school 15 years earlier like i was uh they just told us what the liver did it was so much easier (laughs) (laughs) you know
1: i I think about that sometimes because uh i really did want to just know what the liver did and then i think oh that was so frustrating and then i think well, now I've gone on to have this career where I'm working on an international journal club with essentially problem-based learning and and driven to continue to improve and I think oh, maybe it did work.
0: Yeah, and look, I know you're going to get onto this with the journal club as comments, but I feel like uh, you're right. There was There's this great discussion on the topic of epistemology and the nature of knowledge and how the way we think about knowledge in the medical world is confidence and certainty versus the way we want to think about knowledge in the simulation world with safety and vulnerability. Like this is a really interesting discussion and there's a new name for how hard our debriefing is and we can just say, well, of course it's hard. I'm trying to bridge epistemological beliefs. Uh, You know, (laughs) actually, but to be honest, that is what people are doing. You're trying to bring a different way of learning into a uh, group that might be more used to the confidence and certainty based. But unfortunately, I agree. Then they tested this out on, you know, recognizing cardiovascular murmurs, which is arguably a procedural task for which they're is a clear, correct answer. And I think this would have been more uh, convincing for me if, for instance, it had been about being part of an interprofessional teamwork-focused scenario where I think there would have been more exploration of grey anyway. So um, fabulous questions, fabulous concept, uh, just maybe not the perfect um, set of simulations in which to explore it.
1: Yeah, yeah, that definitely did, did come up. Um, I do think there was still some lovely qualitative um, summaries and quotes of the med students' perceptions um, about how they primarily see learning as getting the answers right, but also some really important stuff to reflect on as educators in terms of how they kind of both fear and revere the facilitators as the gatekeepers of validation as well as knowledge. Um, And, yeah, unfortunately they also use the word Uh, epistemology uh, and other variants of that about 48 times uh, which did not go down particularly well with our journal club group
0: yeah they were harsh harsh.
1: (laughs) so i might um well look i might switch it up we might go to that journal club response and, and then we'll go to the experts response as well in that i did find this really fascinating so a just from a meta level every month in journal club we have a very interesting exercise in psych safety and that the comments start out very very slow at the start of the month and they always snowball in the last week and we start getting this really rich discussion just as the time is coming to the end of cutoff um
0: is this the meta textual moment (laughs) (laughs) it's one of
1: them i really do have to stop using that word but look um A number of big topics came up this month. So there was really a lot of exploration on the formation, the maintenance and repair to psychological safety. A lot of people really appreciated naming the dynamic as a useful kind of power move. And then there was uh, a lot of expression of concern regarding some significant barriers to engagement with Ung's paper, despite actually a lot of appreciation for its message uh, and some recognition that it was a challenging message to hear, which I think was a good thing um eve purdy began the month's discussion with an analogy that highlighted how rapidly and unexpectedly the psychological safety of a situation can change and in doing so she also role modeled vulnerability in getting that conversation started um it was really appreciated that psych safety is very much a conceptual space that is shared between the learner and the facilitator and that it's highly inherently vulnerable Um, And as the paper outlines, these individual, group and institutional factors really interact with each other in a very complex, sometimes volatile way. As Sonia Twigg put it, uh, Colby's paper was an elegant discussion of debriefing that goes beyond the facile assumption that psychological safety can be commanded and into the mud of what actually happens. And a lot of people really enjoyed that nitty-gritty concrete advice. Um, Multiple strategies were shared and workshopped regarding the detection of under-recognized breaches, and a number of participants emphasized both the importance of walking the talk and then... Comor Bajaj actually came in and explored strategies for longitudinal psych safety through uh, orientation and pre briefing to programs in the weeks and months before simulations occur. Uh, A number of people really appreciated that naming the dynamic technique. Uh, Belinda Judd and Susan L explored the utility of it. Uh, It was very much admired as a very useful conversational diffusing technique, but there was also some acknowledgement that done poorly, it could trigger a really inflammatory response and so uh, a number of people mentioned some reluctance utilizing it earlier in their debriefing careers and then sort of coming to it once they were more comfortable with the basics and then moving on uh, to some of the more challenging well not challenging responses but uh, some of the more I guess, stronger critique than we've often had on the journal club, there were a lot of concerns about barriers to engagement with the second paper. So while the message of Ung's paper was valued, so as Sonia put it, it's a relief to get brutally honest about the effect of hierarchy and dominant epistemologies in medicine, there was a strong and pretty close to universal pushback regarding the approachability and readability of the paper. So some readers admitted only reading the front and back page, um, and it was politely suggested that there is a level of inaccessibility for clinician educators in the writing. Um, And yeah, as we've mentioned, the repetition of the word epistemology was kind of seen as a barrier. So for those of you who don't know, which included myself until two weeks ago, um, epistemology, correct me if I'm wrong here, Vic, but it's essentially the study of knowledge.
0: Sounds pretty good day. to me.
1: Yep. So understanding different different concepts about how we know things. Um, and so interestingly, in some ways, our, our discussion, I think, kind of reaffirmed the central thesis of the paper <laughs> in that there was this argument that medical culture um, has an emphasis on being right, an emphasis on, un, you know, showing that we're competent, intelligent, and we're all over this. And I, I guess it was a really interesting moment in that um, I appreciated everyone's candor in terms of how challenging they found this paper. Um, but I think it also in some ways echoed the fact that we weren't comfortable not knowing all of the detail and and uh, coming to these new terms that were heavily used that were very foreign to a lot of us. And I guess it really brought up some challenging thoughts to me in terms of both um Providing some challenging data that I think is really important and then also maybe thinking about um, how to translate that effectively into the community that you want to send the message to as opposed to the community that you're publishing it in.
0: Well, unsurprisingly, I think you've put that in a very insightful way. It does make you challenge your underlying assumptions about teaching and learning. It's very tempting in health professional education to be format-driven watch people do things and think that's a good way to do it instead of thinking, well, hang on, because I like that, what does that mean about my basic assumptions about teaching and learning? And uh, despite teasing me about being a constructivist, I mean, they're the sorts of questions that are probably good to ask if you're going to have some principles driving what you do. For anyone that really does want to have the little skim into the epistemology, which is to be honest, all I can manage. But the table one in here, the focused guiding questions that they used in their research is really instructive about what that is, what is knowledge and what should be learned, how does one know that one knows, Uh, how certain can or should one be of one's knowledge or knowing. And this sounds kind of esoteric until you sort of get into it a little bit and you think actually those things are fairly important if you're going to be thinking about being a teacher. uh, You really need to think about knowledge and learning.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's really clever stuff. I actually had to do this subject in high school called Theory of Knowledge, uh, which was essentially an introduction to sort of philosophy, which I hated at the time because I was 16 and I just thought you just knew stuff and blue was blue and et cetera. It comes full circle. Yeah, I know, you know, but uh, life has become more grey with age and uh, (laughs) literally and (laughs) figuratively. Um, And this is really interesting stuff and I, I, I agree. I think they outline that well.
0: Hmm. Very good.
1: Alrighty. So we might move on to the expert opinion of the month, uh, which was from, uh, Bram Welch So he, uh, is a lovely man. He's an assistant professor of pediatrics at Baylor College of Medicine, and he's the director of simulation in the section of emergency medicine at Texas Children's Hospital in Houston. And uh, we know him uh, from simulcast previously because we've had a chat at IMSH about the effect of rapid cycle deliberate practice on the instructor's skills as well as uh, the participants. Uh, and he's also uh, quite prominent in the field of clinical event debriefing, in that they have a very strong program at. Texas Children's, Uh, and Bram was kind enough to spend a lot of time uh, writing a really lovely expert opinion this month, and I do strongly recommend you download it and read it from our website. Um, He really actually starts with some reflections on Chris Nixon's expert commentary on uh, the Safe Container article, which was a nice sort of full circle as well. Um, He spends some time reflecting on the eminence of the authors and his own journey becoming their colleague in many ways and praises uh, that the core set of values that many thought leaders in Sim have espoused, a relentless pursuit of flat flat hierarchy, open negotiation, and an actively curious stance toward newer ideas and newer voices, have in essence made it safe for other people to talk, including newer people and those in earlier stages of learning and professional development. We get some lovely references to the travelling Wilburys and Violet Revolver, and Bram argues that Colbert's paper is quietly life-changing, and that it makes explicit some key techniques that excellent debriefers have been doing for many years, but provides an elegant summary of such practices in a way that encourages usability via actionable knowledge. And when critiquing uh, the Ung paper, he acknowledges, look, this is a challenging set of results and many of us look at simulation as a locus of experiential learning in which participants and facilitators co-create moments of learning that arise because of specific experiences and in which faculty members are challenged to explore their own perceptions and sometimes misperceptions of learners' frames. We may believe simulation is one of the ways in which we come to appreciate and possibly accept the central role of uncertainty in medical knowledge. However, the students interviewed for this study believed by and large that faculty needed to be independent verifiers of their knowledge and cited social and personal pressures to constantly project an image of certainty in their knowledge. Uh, So, yeah, thank you so much, uh, Bram, for a a lovely response this month and I definitely recommend you uh, download it and check it out in more detail. All
0: right, Ben, so here's the question. Uh, What are you going to do differently in your debriefing having read these two papers?
1: Oh, I like that question. Well, can I tell you one thing that I have done really differently is that I, if I genuinely am open to the learners setting their own topics for discussion Um, I have stopped putting my suggestions first and I instead ask them what they want to talk about Um, and I have found that that helps me somewhat in that even if I could be as nice and as gentle and as open to their contributions as possible I found that if I said what I thought we should talk about that was what we talked about no matter what and I think that hierarchy is so powerful even just being the conversational facilitator Um, and so i've stopped doing that if i'm genuinely open and i i get the team to actually own it and negotiate it and then if there's something i think is really critical then i'll add it but um i've certainly handed that baton to them a little bit more strongly
0: okay i'll take that sounds good
1: so nothing from you
0: What am I going to change?
1: Mm.
0: I think one thing I have already changed is I'm happy to shift a little bit towards the certainty if I feel like it's necessary to get any kind of rapport with the learners. So for instance, if someone says to me, what would you do? I answer that question, as long as it's not the whole debrief. But I think sometimes I used to say, well, I don't know, what would you do, and sort of just bat it around in circles. And I do feel like every now and again uh, it's wise to cross the chasm back into the so-called real world uh, if only to make sure that you are connecting with the learners.
1: Yeah, I think, I think having that freedom that it's okay to teach, that's quite freeing in some ways.
0: Yeah. All right, now can we do the other papers? Yeah, I guess. You're listening to Simulcast. All right, well, just because we've had two such excellent ones, I've just got two shorter papers this time. The first one's titled Peer Group High Fidelity Simulation Debriefing for Final Year Medical Students. And this is by Solanke and colleagues, also in BMJ Still from February this year. And it really explores this concept of debriefing by peers in simulation. Uh, and that's of relevance to me since I'm part of a peer-led simulation uh, student activity that we do, which I'll talk about later. But I'll tell you what they did in this paper. They have medical students, final years, that come to their simulation program uh, four times a year in groups of 10. And what they did was they trained one of the students who had been to a previous session to come along as a peer debriefer for their uh, final year colleagues. So they'd actually done the scenarios themselves and then they'd also had some preparation by uh, being trained up to use some crisis resource management uh, materials as a template. And then they asked the students what did they think about having the peer debriefer there and unsurprisingly, most of them thought it was useful. Many of them thought that uh, it should become a core part of the simulations. Uh, Not everyone, I think, wanted to actually do it themselves and in the discussion they really talk about how there are benefits both for the students involved in the sim in having their peers debrief them but obviously also for the peer debriefers themselves both in their uh, acquiring some more in-depth knowledge of the non-technical skills as they describe them uh but also some increased enthusiasm for being part of the simulation delivery so what did you think ben
1: yeah look i had um some mixed feelings about this paper in that i i liked the initiative um i felt there was a little bit of conclusion overreach in terms of uh, med students liking something equals this is evidence of a good educational intervention um but i still think that the, the uh, thinking behind it uh, makes sense
0: yeah, I think it's very hard to get a good handle on exactly what students did and uh I won't have any spoiler alerts because we are writing something up on our peer-assisted learning simulations where we've actually been having the students write the scenarios as well as do the debriefing. And so I've read rather too much of the peer-assisted learning literature uh, recently, which is very interesting and actually has a lot of the same, well, dare I say it, epistemological principles as uh, in simulation-based learning. A lot of constructivism going on, I'm telling you.
1: Uh,
0: but no, it is very interesting. And there's uh plenty of frameworks and guidance for people who do want to involve student peers in their educational activities. I would say don't just uh, get a bit of an idea because there is a wealth of literature and guidance out there, much of which is very high quality. And uh, I was very interested in their preparation because I think they focused a lot on the what to debrief about in terms of the crisis resource management. And I wasn't sure how they prepared those peer debriefers in terms of the how of the debriefing and whether they Uh, sort of brought them along as a a junior co-facilitator or how central they were to the discussion. And I think, uh, as you say, something a little bit more in-depth, although obviously much harder to do, might have answered those questions. But for me, the take-home is, you know, just sort of adds weight to the idea of, if done carefully, uh, think about including peer tutors as part of a simulation strategy and um, think about what the boundaries around that are because I think there are benefits for both groups of students on either side of the glass window as it were
1: yeah I remember as well oh probably a couple of years ago now on this podcast uh, you were mentioning uh, I forget how you phrased it but you know essentially a learning course where you, where you learn to learn and I think um, that again embedding um, that peer feedback loop is a nice way of having a not necessarily hidden curriculum in in transitioning to that long-term learning and peer feedback mode.
0: Yeah, I think it does help transition that learning culture a little bit, bit by bit. Hmm. All right, and then the uh, second one is kind of a turn the tables on simulation and checklists. So the title of this paper is Safer Surgery Through Simulation, Increase in compliance with the five steps to safer surgery through an in situ simulation based training program at Guys and St Thomas's NHS Foundation Trust, and that's by Jaffrey et al. and uh, some of the crew at the Sail Centre in the UK, and also published in BMJ Stell earlier this year. And this is sort of interesting because we're used to thinking about having a simulation and people might use a checklist in the sim to achieve whatever it is they want to do, intubate the patient or whatever. Whereas this is actually simulation focused on getting better at the checklist itself. Uh so and the background to this is as those who particularly who work in operating theatres know, uh surgical safety checklists have been demonstrated to work, particularly if you actually do them. And uh at this foundation trust they decided to add in a pre-brief and a debrief. As part of the um, five steps, five steps to safer surgery, and they were a little worried about their compliance, so they said, "Let's do some simulation to try and get people to do this more." So I I think an interesting, just basic construct. Ben, yes. So what did they actually do? Now their Insightu Sim was sort of Insightu. They had a half-day training program, uh, and in this case, they reported on the interventional radiology staff where they essentially spoke about the checklist, went through the uh, detail of it, the knowledge elements, but then they put them into a what they describe as rapid cycle deliberate practice for the 5-SSS. So I presume what they did was they went through the checklist, did some critique, some debrief, and then did it again, much as we've heard described about rapid cycle deliberate practice for any other thing that we're trying to get our teams to master. And then they used as their measures of success uh, some pre and post questionnaires and an audit of compliance. So they really did go for, well, this is what we're trying to make better, so we better actually measure it. And uh, in terms of their results, they got about 20 to uh 35% of the staff actually attending the program. Uh, unsurprisingly, the pre and post-questionnaires demonstrated an improvement in knowledge, and they reported an improvement in checklist compliance of 23%, uh, which is actually not insignificant, I guess. Uh, so they did achieve their aim. And I think, as uh, an interesting concept, the idea that you would actually embed your checklist by having simulation about the checklist. So I thought it was good, Ben.
1: Yeah, I remember um, a while ago now we were talking about cognitive aids in general and and how uh, there's a significant barrier to use in real resuscitation due to the fact that we don't rehearse it. So I thought this was a nice demonstration of how to overcome that barrier by sort of drilling it in. And I guess rapid cycle does lend itself to that sort of we don't care about your frame, just do this right kind of thing
0: (laughs) yes exactly oh my god it's all about knowing and culture now (laughs) Uh,
1: who started that
0: (laughs) but i think the i think what it gets to to me is uh habits are really good things to do in or engender in simulation and i know you've thought about this as well but The whole mental rehearsal thing is in many ways just getting into the habit of doing a pre-brief before your trauma or resuscitation arrives. And I've certainly thought about the idea of if we were to be trying to get into the habit of people doing an after-action review after their cases in the real world, shouldn't we actually be asking them to practice that after-action review as the debrief? Of their simulation case, uh, which obviously would involve a huge amount of stepping back from the facilitator, but arguably it would get into this habit of doing something we're expecting them to do rather than a habit of waiting for us to uh, support, lead, generate and facilitate that discussion. So a little bit confronting, but maybe a nice segue into the papers for next month, Ben.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, really it's a little bit of a you know, that same negative training issue we've talked about before, doing one thing in the sim room and then trying to get a different thing happening in real life. It's a nice um, solution to that problem. So, yes, as a segue, the next two papers we're going to look at for um, October um, are, are very much on clinical event debriefing or or Um, After action review. Uh, So the first is uh, the use of surgical debriefing checklists to achieve higher value healthcare, uh, published by Rose and Rose, uh, sorry, written by Rose and Rose and uh, published in the American Journal of Medical Quality. And uh, the second paper is the implementation of surgical debriefing programs in large health systems and exploratory qualitative analysis uh, by Mary Brindle et al. in BMC Health Sites. Services research and that's an open access paper. So we're looking at the numbers as well as uh, the themes next month. Um, I guess one thing we discussed behind the scenes is uh, we're now talking about clinical event debriefing. Is this uh, particularly sim related? And I guess to me, it, it sort of fits with that zone four simulation of of moving beyond rehearsal and and learning to learn from the cases we see. And I certainly know in our sender uh, a lot of us who are involved in sim uh, tend to be the people who are uh, drawn and or pushed towards uh, this sort of new frontier. Vic?
0: Yes, I'm, very happy to support it, entirely appropriate. Uh, And I think because I just did want to go back to Michaela Colby's paper for a minute, because the last paragraph of that says, while this paper focuses specifically on debriefing as part of simulation-based training, most of these insights, i.e. psychological safety, apply to clinical event debriefing in the workplace. And I thought that was a bit of a throwaway line, to be honest, Mm. uh, because, I don't know, they didn't really sort of build up to that, and then it's just there in that last paragraph. So I'm rather hoping that becomes also part of our discussion next month, uh, Journal Clubbers. So I'm very keen to have people say what they think about clinical event debriefing, the definitional challenges, as well as the um, actually pretty impressive success that at least some people are reporting in those papers. So, www.simulationpodcast.com jump onto the journal club and uh, tell us what you think
1: absolutely looking forward to it
0: alright Ben well uh, another great month's discussion mm-hmm. I hope you have a good October and uh, I guess this is us signing off for Simulcast mm-hmm. thanks Ben yeah, see you soon. you're listening to Simulcast